Hello everyone. Welcome to my show Career Startup Podcast, a podcast to spotlight world-class Asian entrepreneurs, C-suite executives, leaders and allies who provide insights and wisdom from their personal journey to inspire you. And this is your host Priyanka Komla. And to our listeners, do subscribe to our podcast. We are on LinkedIn Live, we are on YouTube under the name Career Startup Podcast and all your favorite podcast streaming platforms. So, check out all our episodes as well. Today we have a very interesting guest who jo- who's joining us from Washington DC here in the US Shruti Rajagopalan Hi Shruti welcome to the show Hi Priyanka thank you so much for having me It's such a pleasure to have you on the show Shruti and to our listeners we have a different spin to the show Shruti is a well-known economist she's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and a fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute at New York University School of Law Before joining the Mercatus Center she was an associate professor of economics at State University of New York Purchase College. Shruti enjoys writing in popular press and she has a fortnightly column called The Impartial Spectator and Mint. She also has published opinion editorials on Indian political economy in the in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, the Hindu, the Indian Express and many more. Shruti's broad area of interest uh, is the economic analysis of comparative legal and political systems. Shruti, that's an impressive portfolio of work. Congratulations. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Uh thank you Shruti. And to our listeners, three reasons why you should be listening to this episode. One, let's unveil the career journey of an economist, economist let's unveil the career journey of an economist and the leadership lessons that Dr. Shruti can provide. as an asian as a woman of color uh, because there are very few economists whom we can really look up to as role models one being geeta gopinath uh, the chief uh, uh, economist at imf two let's delve into the economic analysis in the current covid pandemic situation and three as the host of ideas of india podcast let's unveil the podcaster behind dr shruti as well so we are super excited to learn more about you shruti and feel inspired Oh thank you. I I hope I do some inspiring uh, and and actually live up to all the kind things you've said about me. Thank you Shruti. So let's start with your childhood. You grew up in Delhi in the northern part of India. How was it growing up with the Delhi's hot summers? <laughs> I I actually come from a Tamilian family and we grew up in Delhi as as you mentioned. Uh so you know it was really interesting. Uh, we didn't I had no other point of comparison uh, so you know I mean it was growing up in Delhi it was in the 80s and 90s just very middle class family uh, but of course with a lot of privilege you know uh, despite being middle class my mother's a renowned classical musician uh, Saraswati Rajagopalan she plays the veena so you know my my upbringing had a lot of music uh, my father was a banker in the public sector banking system uh, you know both sets of grandparents lived with us so it was just you know very very typical childhood but you know mixed in with a lot of culture music travel uh, you know especially when we accompanied my mother across the world on her tours and things like that so you know a classic middle class upbringing but with the privilege of having a very culturally cosmopolitan uh, you know uh, added benefit in, in the family i love the you, way you put it shruti uh, you know growing up in a normal family with career aspirations and look at you today and to our listeners you need to uh, look at the list of degrees that shruti oh, has and i'm going to read it out i'm just so proud of you as a fellow indian <laughs> asian and a woman who has a phd in economics from george mason university 
and a BA honors in economics and a law degree from the University of Delhi in India and an LLM from the European Masters in Law and Economics program at the University of Hamburg, Ghent University and the University of Bologna. So that's impressive. And when I asked Shruti, uh, you know, please be my guest on episode number 42, she had an interesting spin on that as well. So, you know, talk a little bit about the importance of number 42 and your career journey as an economist. I hope we have the answers for everything. Well, the first one is really easy. You know, 42 in Douglas Adams is, you know, 42 is the answer to everything. So the second you said I'm the 42nd, I'm the guest for the 42nd episode, I said, well, that's it. We're going to solve all, all the troubles in the world, right? But I was just being facetious. Uh, about my, my journey into economics, honestly, I grew up wanting to become a lawyer. I didn't know anything about the discipline of economics. It wasn't taught in schools or anything like that. The only childhood moment I remember or, you know, had a big impact on me, which now I look back as an economist, is when India liberalized. And, you know, you grew up around the same time in India. So, you know, suddenly you can get, you know, Pepsi and you can get more than two brands of chocolates. And, right. you know, there are these huge changes happening all in society. International brands show up in our Exactly. Country. All the brands show up. You can literally see the economic change, you know, shaping around you. So that was, I think, one big event. But other than that, my childhood was very unremarkable, uh, you know, in, in forming an economist of any sort. I just wanted to be a lawyer. And towards that, I did my BA, you know, and you have to choose a subject for your BA. I, I thought I would be good at economics. And, you know, I mean, the way Delhi University works is your grades determine your college and your choice of subject. So I did, I got great grades in, you know, my 12th grade exam. So I managed to get into a really good school and I managed to get into the economics program. And I think it's really at Delhi University that, you know, my career as an economist shaped. I had an incredible set of professors, uh, you know, most notably Professor Anil Kukradi. He was my, you know, he taught me principles and intermediate microeconomics uh, at Hansraj. And he was just exceptional. He recently retired. I'm still in touch with him. You know, I it's just like the kind of person who can just spark an economic interest in pretty much anyone. And he's always been a, you know, bit of a role model in that sense. Um, I had a great professor in public finance called, uh, you know, Professor Alka Kakar. So these are sort of the people who, who, you know, started the fire. I still went on to get a law degree at the University of Delhi. Very early into that, I knew that I wanted, I did not want to become a lawyer. But, you know, like typical Indian families, uh, you know, one doesn't drop out of a program. That's just some not in our DNA, right? Like you finish what you started. So I tried to find things in law school that I found interesting. You know, I mean, I did a lot of research and writing. I worked at a pro bono research uh, center with Dr. Rajiv Dhawan and a bunch of other people. And um, the, the economic framework, you know, the analytical framework of economics kept nagging at me the whole time. And that's when I started digging more into it. I met a few other professors. I learned that there was a whole area in economics called law and economics. Then I learned that there was a whole area in economics called constitutional economics. And I said, oh, this is amazing. You know, that's what I really want to do. And then I went on to do my master's and PhD in that area. So the reason I have so many degrees is I, I didn't quite know what I was doing. It was a very long winded path to, you know, becoming what I eventually wanted to become. And, and most of the blame for the degrees is that, uh, you know, good Indian middle-class girls don't know when to quit. <laughs> hey, you know, that's, you have an impressive amount of education and I'm so glad you're putting it uh, into purpose by helping 
enlighten a lot of people about the fundamentals of economics. Uh, you know, that's very important and crucial uh, in today's times. And I'm so glad you're being very humble. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I mean, if I could have taken a shorter path to this career, I would have I would have jumped at it. It just I was confused for a long time. And usually some people who are confused, you know, to know when to quit and move on to, you know, try a few other things. I didn't quite know that, you know, I didn't know that you could drop out of school or, you know, like those were just not options uh, given my upbringing. And you can imagine that, right? Like, like, you know, well-educated good girls in India don't just drop out of school. So right. uh, I was being, you know, I was just partly joking but honestly uh, sometimes you know you start something and it's not for you and I think we need to have uh, you know especially among Asians uh, and Asian Americans the attitude of it is okay to fail at something and then go try something else you're not a failure if you drop out of you know law school or something like that I could have saved myself a few years of my life you know, that's a good attitude to have. And that's one of the reasons we have this podcast, because we can spotlight such inspiring stories on. You get to choose the path that you want to be on. And it doesn't have to be a linear path sometimes. It could be a, a long-winded path, like what you chose. But towards the end of the day, there's a meaning and purpose from the experiences yeah. that you draw as part of the journey. Yeah, no, I got very lucky. I had some fantastic teachers, you know, in within the field of economics. I had some incredible mentors and who continue to be my teachers and mentors till day. And, uh, you know, I, I got I was very fortunate in that sense that even in a somewhat niche area within economics, I managed to find my people and, you know, get the support and the guidance that I needed to eventually become, uh, you know, an economist. That's pretty cool. So let's talk about your recent articles. You write uh, uh, as the impartial spectator of Mint, which is a, a you know well-known um, news outlet in India. Uh, you spoke about, you wrote about, I should say, getting Indians vaccinated amidst COVID. And I felt that was a very interesting uh, uh, piece, given the, the population that we have. And you focused on, we need both a government subsidy and a free market for vaccines to fight the COVID pandemic. Tell us your take about the ongoing situation and, you know, some of the thoughts that are still prevailing in your mind. Yeah. So, you know, uh, since I wrote that column, some things have changed in India. So when I wrote that column, the assumption was that, you know, the vaccine will be one dose per person. So that assumption has now changed. It seems like it'll be given in three doses, right, which obviously increases the cost. So some of the numbers in that column literally just they need to be tripled, uh, you know, for that reason. I think I'd said 11,000 crore rupees, which is about 110 billion rupees. That's about 1.5 billion USD. So now, you know, you think in terms of 4.5 billion USD. My argument there was that even with the modern number, which is, uh, you know, Adar Punawala gave this number, he said it's going to take 80,000 crore rupees, 800 billion, right, to vaccinate all Indians across the two or three doses, that's only $11 billion. That is actually not that much money when it comes to thinking about the pandemic. The pandemic has had two kinds of, you know, impact on the economy or like economic disruption. One is the pandemic led to many governments, the most restrictive one in India, to impose lockdowns. Right. So the lockdown just kind of kills all economic activity. So the COVID related pandemic led to the lockdown and therefore, you know, economic activity was disrupted. But even in places where there wasn't such a severe lockdown, economic activity has been disrupted. And the reason is people are scared to go out. Right. People are not going to restaurants. No one is going to, you know, hear a concert or go to sports bars and things like that. And the local economy takes a very hard and the, 
Exactly. So the local economy is, of course, taken a hard hit, but the economy is like a, you know, meticulously interconnected sort of web, right? So, you know, we we see it in our local context the most because we literally see, you know, retail stores and restaurants boarded up, but actually the global economy has also taken a hit. So in that sense, for a for India, which is a fairly large economy, right, three trillion economy, uh, $11 billion is pocket change to kickstart the economy and make sure this problem goes away, right? So that's just the question of, is the benefit of paying for a vaccine as a society worth the cost? And I'm like, it is absolutely worth the cost. You know, this 11 billion will pay for itself in spades. You know, you can... Uh, you can make sure that it will generate economic activity and that will generate government revenue. So even the government will get paid back should it subsidize this. Now, there are three issues at work when it comes to how do we actually make this happen? Like, let's assume we magically produce, you know, uh, the amount of money, which is this 80,000 crore rupees that is required. The most crucial insight that economics gives us is that vaccines are a net positive externality. And what we mean that by that is that each one of us associates a private value for the vaccine, right? So, you know, I mean, it's going to allow me to go to work, it's going to allow me to go to a, you know, sports game, or it's going to allow me to go to a concert. And so we have a private value associated it. But the moment I vaccinate myself, I'm not just protecting myself, I also protect other people. Right. So all these vaccines, you know, for most of these diseases and especially for COVID, the social value of the vaccine is always greater than the private value of the vaccine. Right. So in economics, the models would suggest that, you know, because the private value is less than the social value, it's probably going to be under consumed. So the government must subsidize it. This is true for any positive externality. Now, there are a few things in addition to that for COVID, uh, especially in India. Now that we know the social value is so high, how do we pay for it and who will pay for it, right? Now, India, in addition to having a very large number of people, also has a very large number of poor people, right? And we know that the economic disruption has hurt the poor the most, especially the poor who are in the informal sector. So my argument is that the government must pay for the poor people, right? But at the same time, we can have a market, a free market price for people who can afford it. Right. So what will end up happening if we put in price controls or quantity controls is the people who are well connected end up getting it first. And, you know, you've grown up in India. I've grown up in India. We know how this works. The advantage of having this dual system where the government will reimburse at cost for poor people and then, you know, pharmaceutical sellers can sell it at market price for rich people is that people who can afford it will pay for it. They will likely pay for it, you know, for their household help or people who work with them or for them. There are going to be a lot of people in civil society who, you know, immediately get into action and start, you know, helping get people vaccinated at market price. There are going to be institutions who will pay for it for their employees and, you know, so on and so forth. So there is a large group within Indian society that can afford to pay for this at market price. For the rest of the people, the government should reimburse the pharmaceutical company at cost, which is about $3 per dose. That's roughly the cost of it, right? And here, there are multiple models you can have. So you can have a system where, you know, you have a whole number of private um, vaccine delivery systems where the government will reimburse the private vendor for each dose that is administered. Or the government, you know, like the polio drive can set up its own vaccination drive, which obviously takes much longer. So there are multiple models. But my argument is still that the government should pay for those who cannot pay for themselves. 
but not intervene in the market process, right? And finally, we really shouldn't nationalize or appropriate the vaccines because this is a tendency in India. There are already a lot of people who are very upset that, you know, vaccine manufacturers are going to make 80,000 crores. But frankly, I mean, resources went into producing the vaccine. 80,000 crores is what it costs to produce that at cost, not making huge profit margins, right? And it's very important that we pay for this, right, and not expropriate or nationalize from the vaccine industry because otherwise we will kill the industry. And it's very important India supplies vaccines not just to the largest population, the youngest population in the world, which is Indians, but also to the world. So there are multiple reasons we need to get the economic problem right, not just the technological or the scientific problem right. That's a very interesting spin, Shruti, uh, in terms of the social value of getting vaccinated is more than the private value. I think that's a very interesting takeaway from an economic perspective, because most of the times you're looking at from a, a health perspective or a societal perspective, you know, but really understanding the crux of economics has really opened our minds in terms of how do you look at a global pandemic like COVID? Yeah, but you know, a 50 cent mask the social value of that is greater than the private value. Because when I wear a mask, I don't just protect myself. I also protect everyone within a few right. feet of me, right? So it, it's not just true for vaccines, but it is particularly true for vaccines because the effect is more durable. That's pretty great. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that interesting piece of insight and the economic models and the analysis. It gives us a, a, a nice opening into the minds of an economist, uh, which is a totally different perspective than our you know, regular way of looking at a pandemic. Now, there's another interesting article that, that I wanted to touch base on, which is about lowering the entry barriers to radio and television broadcasting, mm -hmm. and that could fill gaps in schooling at a very low cost. Tell us your take on this, given we have the online schools, especially with this global pandemic, but there's also the affordability of parents in terms of technology all of a sudden for these kids and kids adopting these technologies as well. So what's your take on that from an economic perspective? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this has been, I think, the worst disruption, uh, you know, aside from the economic that has been caused by COVID is that children are not going to school. Right. And here there are two aspects to it. One is, of course, the, you know, child development, both social and educational in terms of human capital gets stunted. But the other impact this has is it's going to really increase the inequality that education is fundamentally supposed to bridge. So what is happening in India and many other parts of the world is families where, you know, uh, parents have college degrees or parents are educated and parents have access infrastructure, they have data plans, they can afford tablets for their children. Uh, they are coping just fine, you know, aside from the psychological cost, they are able to seamlessly go online. And parents who are not technologically sophisticated or who are not literate or who don't have college degrees, who can't help their children with schoolwork, who can't afford, you know, personalized tablets and laptops, their children get left behind, right? And normally this gap between the rich and the poor, this inequality gets bridged by education and schooling. And now we are seeing during the pandemic that this is just going to get worsened, right? So that's the, the fundamental thing that I want to put out there. Now... In India, we talk about, you know, cell phone penetration, and it's true, we have fantastic cell phone penetration post-liberalization, you know, all the, all the regulatory changes that were made in telecom, as well as, you know, the introduction of internet and data and, you know, the big, very, very cheap data plans. But not every household has multiple devices, 
right? And when we talk about household penetration, usually it's, you know, one of the parents who will have a sophisticated phone with a good data plan that they likely take with them to work, right? Or if they're working from home, they need it to work from home. It's not dedicated to the child for their education. This is, of course, you know, the worst affected are the poorest students. So we have about, you know, 100 to 150 million students who are just completely off grid. Okay, just totally and completely off grid. There is about another 150 million students who are somewhat off grid. You know, there is some someone in the household who might have a device, but they the reason I wrote this column was a 14-year-old Dalit student, you know, a young girl in Kerala committed suicide because uh, she didn't have the devices to do online schooling. Now, India, on the other hand, has very high television penetration, you know, and as we know, the television stays in the household. It doesn't leave with the parent, right? It's not used for work. So if we could manage to use the television as somewhat of a substitute and broadcast education, that would have been great. Now, some of the state governments, like Kerala state government, some of the state governments started doing that. But I started thinking about why is it that we don't have really good educational channels on an ongoing basis? Why is the television, which is so universal in India right now, not being used properly to impart education? Why is it just soaps and, you know, bad Saas Bahu shows and, you know, Bollywood? Right. And it's and a perfect channel, right? Where it's a great it's, channel. Where mass consumption. And yeah. You know, as kids, we were hooked to our television sets as we were Exactly. And, you know, you can have lots of different ways of communicating. You can do it in regional language. And I figured that, as always, the reason is regulatory, right? So the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting has entry requirements for anyone who wants to start a television channel. So for a person who wants to start a TV channel, it's five crore, you know, 50 million rupees, or which is close to about you know, 680, $700 million, right? And for companies that are applying for a news channel, it is 20 crore, 200 million rupees, right? Which is about 2.7, $2.8 million. That's very high cost of entry to start a new channel. 20 crores to start an education channel, you're never going to recover the money, right? Or a niche news channel or to start a history channel. So what we end up seeing in India because of bad licensing and entry barrier requirements you only see people catering to the largest number of people and chasing ratings. So if you've been following the news in India, this is not just about education and broadcasting. It's also overall about news. Like our TV channels are, cha you know, making money off of the unfortunate, you know, death by suicide of Sushant Singh Rajput, or they're chasing like, you know, alleged drug scandals in Bollywood instead of actually reporting on important things. And the reason for this kind of, you know, sensationalism or is because only the loudest, most sensational channel can actually raise the revenues to pay for, you know, this 20 crore licensing fee, which was required to enter the business. So the entry licensing has completely killed diversity in programming in India. And my argument is we need to eliminate this licensing. Now, the government says that will mean there's proliferation of channels. And I'm like, that's exactly what we need. We need proliferation of channels, right? Some of them are going to be bad. Some of them are going to be good, but that's fine. 
Yeah. And they're going to self-select themselves, right? They're going to self-select themselves. And right. some of them are going to be very niche, but that's amazing, right? Uh, so imagine if you could do like, you know, even something like entrance exams for IITJ, if, you know, some kind person who was genuinely interested in it for philanthropic reasons, not just, you know, earning tuition money, uh, was interested in, you know, imparting this kind of information to kids on how they can, you know, crack the entrance exams or how they can do better in their, you know, 10th and 12th grade exams. I think those kinds of channels would be great. Uh, and it would also improve basic, you know, literacy and arithmetic. Ar arithmetics. So I, I think there's a huge opportunity there. It's been completely stifled by bad regulation. And that was sort of the argument I made. So it starts with a COVID specific issue, but I think it's a much broader issue in Indian political economy. You know, that's a very interesting um, uh, spin again on how broadcast media works in India. And I'm so glad you help us understand how the regulation system works. And I agree with you uh, when there are issues about, you know, brutal women rapes and killings in the northern part of India or be it the, the farmer situations and the bills that are getting passed, which are not farmer friendly. Media is looking for sensationalization of Bollywood issues or things that bring them TRP ratings. And uh, that's a sad situation of the, the state of media. Yeah. And I, I think it's, I mean, we, we are... The, the government says that they want to do this to, you know, ensure there's quality and non-proliferation of channels. I think it's also an instrument of control. You know, the moment you have very high entry requirements and you have this kind of licensing regime, you can control what kind of information is put out in mass media. So, of course, there are other, you know, venues. We have Twitter, we have YouTube, we have the kinds of things you're doing, the kinds of things I'm doing, but they're not mass. Right. And they're not in every person's household. Uh, they've done the same thing with radio licensing, by the way. That's why podcasts are so big in India. But you don't have all radio channels in India are only playing Bollywood or devotional music. Right. Because you need to, again, appeal yeah, to the largest number of audiences. Yeah. yeah. So the amounts I mentioned for television, they're smaller for radio, but it's the same mess, you know. But then the podcasters like you and me get to have a career. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's important for you know our community, our people, to actually be aware of you know how things work behind the scenes and choose the medium uh, to help grow and educate themselves and be informed as to what's more important. And I see a lot of proliferation on social media. You know, the youngsters, millennial generation, are focused on empowerment-specific issues. When they see racial injustice, people speak up. I think the change is happening, but it's like. How does the government align to make sure the citizens, um, you know, get a free path in terms of voicing their opinions and ensuring the, the government regulations and the policies reflect the changing times as well? Yeah. And I think, I mean, in India, we've always stifled free speech, right? Some of it is through these regulatory requirements. Some of them are just through, you know, bad laws we have, like contempt of court and, you know, things like that. Uh, we have all these public decency, morality, all these additional issues. We censor our movies. We censor our television. We even censor ads on TV. So I think, I mean, the, the free speech uh, standard that you're talking about, which, you know, the global standard and especially the American standard, we just simply don't have that in India. So whatever is happening is happening under the radar. And, you know, the, the moment it becomes too big, the government just clamps down on it. Very true. Hey, but you also have an amazing writing career where you voice your opinions as part of free speech. Tell us about your, how does it feel writing as an impartial spectator for men? 
Ah, so, you know, Mint has been great. I have been writing for Mint pretty much since the first week that they were in existence. Uh, you know, the opinion editor's uh, page editor were, at that time was Niranjan Rajadhyaksh, who was just an incredible editor, you know, great mentor to young people who were writing, literally held my hand and said, hey, you have a couple of nice ideas you should write. And so that's kind of how I started. I started writing the occasional piece for them. Uh, about three years ago, uh, he said that I think you should really start writing a column. You know, you you have a lot of ideas. You should get into the discipline. I was terrified to to write one because I was like, how will I come up with something every two weeks? And then, you know, exactly as Niranjan had predicted, the moment you you put your mind to this, you know, there's so much going on around us that 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 it just happens. Um, so Mint has been a wonderful home for me. Uh, you mentioned the name Impartial Spectator. Uh, that is actually a theme that comes, uh, you know, from Adam Smith, uh, Adam Smith's book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. For him, the Impartial Spectator is, uh, is an imaginary figure or construct that each one of us has to offer moral guidance, you know, to evaluate one's own conduct and sentiments as we negotiate our lives. Uh, many people at Mint liked it because they thought that it may also convey a non-partisan element, uh, which, you. you know, I mean, as an economist, of course, uh, my, my uh, uh, responsibility is always to get the economic ideas right and not, you know, who is in power and which party is ruling and things like that. But it worked both ways. I was writing an economics column, so I borrowed from Adam Smith. And uh, it's been a wonderful run. It has really made me think you know, I mean, I have thought a lot deeper about things, you know, like why is a 14 year old girl in Kerala committing suicide, you know, because COVID doesn't allow her to go to school. And then I go down the rabbit hole and start looking into why this is happening or not happening. So it's also like really helped me think much more about, you know, ideas that I would have normally just dismissed. I would have just read this in the paper and felt bad and moved on. You know, it's just, you know, now I, I, I know that if something is annoying me or it's on my mind, I should really write about it. And uh, it's it's been a great run. I mean, it's a great privilege uh, for anybody to get a column and, and Mint has just been a wonderful home for me. Kudos and your articles are amazing. So I'd encourage our listeners to check out the Impartial Spectator at Thank you. You're too kind. <laughs> and we'll have a link to it as part of our episode notes as well. Now, tell us about your uh, Ideas of India podcast. Why should people listen to it? Ah, so it actually relates to something we've been talking about. You know, my goal with the podcast was to bridge the gap between academic ideas and, you know, ideas and real world problems and policy. And in India, I mean, we just talked about this, the current discourse on the news, uh, on the radio, sometimes even the new newspapers is very disappointing. It lacks depth. And it is not rooted in the latest research or data or, you know, the kind of knowledge that is being produced. So the advantage of having academics or working within the academy is that it's very well researched and rigorous but the disadvantage is it's usually not easily accessible right to public intel intellectuals or even you know really engaged lay citizens so my goal with the podcast was to bridge this gap you know so i have an incredible list of experts and academics who've written amazing books and papers. So, you know, I've had economists like Sriya Ayer, who works on religion, uh, Ajay Shah, who's written about state capacity. I've had historians like Dinyar Patel, who's written this amazing biography of uh, Dadabai Naroji. I've had legal anthropologist Anuj Bhuvania on the Indian Supreme Court, you know, political theorist Madhav Kosla, who's spoken about, you know, the founding of India's constitution. Uh, my next episode is actually, I'm really excited, is with the Virala Chakra. 
Acharya, who's a professor of finance at NYU. And as you know, he was the deputy governor of RBI until last year. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the problems with the autonomy of the central banks, which is caused by government fiscal dominance. So it's just like an incredible list of people. There's so much to learn from them. And I'm hoping, you know, that that I can bring their ideas to a, a broader audience. It's also a slightly self-serving exercise. You know, in the process, I get to read great books. I mean, you, you know this as a podcaster. When you're doing something with a particular podcast in mind, you research it a little bit more deeply, you know. So, so when I read their books, I read it in a more engaged and deeper fashion. I don't read it passively. Um so it's been a great personal exercise for me. I've been learning so many new ideas. It's an absolute privilege to speak to them. And, and hopefully, you know, the, the goal long term is that it changes the discourse, you know, one episode at a time. That's a pretty cool idea. And I love the name. I mean, <laughs> your podcast, it's, it aligns with, uh, you know, your thinking as well in terms of uh, connecting the, uh, the field of economics, the scientific research behind it with lay audiences as well, so we can really understand the approach behind it. Yeah. No, that's very much the goal. Now, let's talk about um, the importance of role models and mentors. You know, we discussed offline about how we wish we had more role models when we were growing up, right, as we chose our career paths. Today, we have Geeta Gopinath, who's, um, you know, the Indian-American economist who has been uh, named as the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund since 2019. You know, as an Asian, as a woman of color who comes from humble background, it's very inspiring when you see women like her rise to the top and, you know, literally uh, make her word, uh, uh, you know, uh, change policy decisions, you know, impact the stock market. So it's it's huge having somebody like her. Now, tell us about your uh, one advice that you would give for any woman as an Asian woman of color who wants to rise into leadership roles like you and Geeta Gopinath. Oh, wow. I can't speak for Geeta Gopina. She's just an incredible person. You know, for me, it's a little bit hard to say uh, when it comes to, you know, an Asian woman of color. I'll tell you why. Uh, I grew up with an enormous amount of privilege from where I come from, right? Because in India, if you come from an upper caste or especially a Tamilian Brahmin family, uh, you are not really like, you know, you're not facing disadvantages that minorities usually face. Uh, it's an incredibly privileged background. You know, I mean, there was no question on whether I would go to school, whether I would go to university. I didn't even imagine dropping out of law school. You know, I mean, my family culturally, educationally was just incredibly supportive. So I can't, uh, speak to them as a, as the in terms of experience of having disadvantage in any way. You know, I've I've I I must uh, address that you know uh, right away. Uh, but more generally, the kind of advice I would give to young women is, I think, I I would just say, don't lose your femininity and your culture. Uh, in the sense that I have occupied a very male space most of my career because economics is dominated by men, uh, not just, you know, whether this is in India or the United States, it's a very, you know, the male-female ratio is a little bit off. And I have seen women, and I'm sure I've done the same, uh, you know, we, we all try and conform to what an economist should look like and sound like and behave like, and it tends to be very male, right? So, you know, the, the most general advice I would give is, you know, be yourself, 
embrace you know whatever is your conception of being feminine embrace whatever is your conception of your cultural context you know whether it is in the way you dress or what you eat or you know whom you date or or whatever it is so that's my general advice the other advice i have is uh, i think it it's a great thing to cultivate good strong relationships with mentors right and this is not just with women it's anyone who within your particular world or field would be a good mentor for you i think uh, my life has been shaped by incredible teachers and mentors who mentor me till date you know no matter how small or big the the problem and i have hugely benefited from that and i think cultivating those relationships over a very long period of time uh, i i i think it just makes one a stronger person with more dimension that's pretty great advice and role models and mentors play a great part in our in shaping our life uh, i really agree with that part of it uh, and you mentioned you occupy definitely a male dominated space we see that with you know even in the field of technology we always say it's women in technology because we're trying to create more allies with men and you know leaders who can give us that uh, you know that room to really grow and nurture our ambitions our passions I would actually just add one more thing that I've grown up in a very male dominated space but on the other hand all my mentors have also been men you yeah, know I've had really impressive yeah no but I have had incredible male role models who have really understood you know my point of view whether it is work related or personal and uh, you know one one advantage of also being in a male dominated space is you get to find all the successful people are men and then they also teach you how to navigate that space you know uh, despite being a, a smaller proportion you know of that population within within economists or within technology or whatever it may be so i i think even more so that you know for me it's really the male mentors who have who have shaped me and my career that's pretty good to know and um, you know men are important allies for us right from you know our fathers to our uh you know to our partners to our friends and professors you know they play a great role in shaping our lives and giving us the strength and inspiration as well to make an impact you know make change and it comes only when there is a supportive cohesive community around you yeah you know, especially men yeah absolutely i really lucked out you know i mean a huge part of it is the birth lottery which is you know great parents grandparents you know grandfathers and 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 my father uh, i i chose well with my husband uh, who's who's incredibly supportive i think might be even more of a feminist than i am uh, and <laughs> that's a good thing to have <laughs> uh, yeah and my you know my my father in law i'm i'm sort of surrounded by very like you know really vocal and passionate feminist men uh, and and the same is true for all my teachers and co-authors and things like that so i i think you know i mean there's such a huge element of luck in this i i always feel nervous advising young women because i have honestly not had those terrible experiences that we hear from women you know asian women women of color i've i, I just had like this you know sort of rosy privileged life in comparison so so i i must acknowledge that <laughs> uh but so humble of you to share those uh, you know your upbringing which has uh, helped you in your path but at the same time i love the fact that you're willing to support other women you know other people in the community who can uh, you know engage with each other and you know see you as a role model as well uh, you know in spite of uh, whatever path you choose you know there's always a way to rise to the top uh with that being said we have a fun rapid fire round for you are you ready for that i i hope i'm ready for that 
<laughs> you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind and it needs to be one word okay, okay. role model uh, probably James M Buchanan you know the Nobel laureate James M Buchanan who's started the field of constitutional political economy uh, he's incredible he's the reason I came to George Mason University among some of the many other scholars who were here you know he had this incredible career he wrote from say I think his earliest papers are 1949 until 2013 when he when he died and some of it was even published posthumously so he wrote for 65 years as an academic, right? And he was just throughout these six, seven decades trying to understand the kinds of rules and institutional and constitutional structures that lead to a free and prosperous society. So, you know, I can't, he's literally the first thing that that pops to my head. I see you're super excited, Sharon, <laughs> your role model as well. What does happiness mean to you in one word? Oh, just being home. I, I like being home with my family, my dog, with some, with left alone with a book and some music. I like having my family around, but not necessarily talking to them all the time. And we all family of readers. So we just like to read. Uh, yeah, that's probably my idea of happiness. What is one fun thing about you uh, that you can share exclusively with our career startup listeners? <laughs> a fun thing. You know, actually, I'm a lot more silly than people imagine. You know, everyone, like like you mentioned, everyone thinks I'm like a serious economist who writes about all these really serious topics and I have this impartial spectator column. I'm actually really silly. You know, I laugh at the silliest things. I crack myself up all the time over the dumbest jokes. I could watch like Tom and Jerry and Laurel and Hardy over and over again. So I'm I'm actually a lot more silly than I get credit for. You know, it's nice to have, you know, that kind of a personality as well, where you're witty and humorous, which we can see as part of the, the show as well. Being more approachable, I think that's a very crucial quality for economists. <laughs> um, the last question we have, what is your native language? And I know the answer for that. And one word to describe yourself in it. Oh, boy. I, you know, I don't know what my native language is. I <laughs> learned English and Hindi and Tamil all simultaneously. And uh, it's a mix in my head, depending on what topic I'm talking about, I think in a particular language. So if I'm talking about work, it's uh, it's English. If I'm talking about food, it's Tamil. <laughs> or I'm talking why about don't family. We, why don't we do Tamil? What's one word you would describe yourself in Tamil? You know, curious. Uh, so in Tamil, that would be Avaramak. You know, that's the, or in Hindi, that would be Jigyasu. You know, not curious, like odd curious, like curious, like want to learn more about the world curious. So, uh, so Jigyasu uh, would, uh, you know, be the, I think that good translation. Someone's going to catch this on the internet, right? If this is a good translation. yeah. That's pretty cool. Do you have any parting thoughts and your experience being on the show that you can share with our listeners? Oh, thank you. This is, uh, you've been so kind to invite me. It's been lovely doing this. I, I told you this a little bit uh, before we, we went live, but I think it's really great to have people who have had all sorts of different careers, especially for Asians, because Asian families of privilege have a very cookie cutter version of what success looks like, right? Like it doesn't include doing strange things or dropping out of school and, you know, having becoming like a law and economics person or something like that. And so to that extent, I think the more interesting experiences you can highlight through your podcast, it's, it's really great for younger people. Uh, I wish I had had a show like this when I was growing up and I had known that there's you know various different fields within economics it's not just macro and monetary and labor and development so to that extent you know I mean it's it's wonderful what you're doing and thank you so much for having me this was great fun
Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shruti Rajagopalan. So that was Dr. Shruti Rajagopalan, uh, economist and, um, you know, a wonderful uh, podcaster, I should say, and a columnist as well. So thank you so much for joining our show. And to our listeners on Curry Up Startup Podcast with Dr. Shruti Rajagopalan, the three key takeaways that we have. One, you don't have to follow a linear path. Choose your passion and you'll figure your destination as you come along. And two, we spoke about uh, the situation in India from an economic analysis perspective, be it with the COVID vaccines and uh, lowering the barrier for broadcast and, uh, you know, radio and the TV medium in order to ensure, uh, you know, kids deserve the education that they deserve. And, you know, we help these young minds uh, afford this education, especially in this global pandemic. So that was very interesting analysis. And I love the fact that, uh, you know, the social value of using vaccines trumps the, the private value. I think that's a good takeaway for us. And third, and the most fabulous aspect of all, embrace yourself, be it your style, your culture, your femininity, no matter the space that you operate within, just be yourself. So those are the three key takeaways. With that, um, super excited uh, to have had you on our show and we look forward uh, to following you on your Twitter channel as well, which is very impressive, the kind of nuggets that you share with us. So listeners, do check that out. Um, and until another interesting episode with another interesting guest, this is your host, Priyanka Komla, signing off from Curry Up Startup Podcast, a podcast to spotlight world-class Asian leaders, entrepreneurs, and allies who provides insights and wisdom from their personal journey to inspire you. And make sure you subscribe to our channel on YouTube. We're on LinkedIn Live as well and your favorite podcast streaming platforms. Thank you and have a wonderful rest of the day.